Welcome to The Dr. Medic, everyone, where I will do my best to bridge the gap between research and practice in the world of helicopter EMS and all of paramedicine. Catch the full effect of these podcasts with all the visuals over on YouTube, but for now, let's get started. The date is August 26, 2011, and a patient is being transported to a hospital near Kansas City, Missouri via a medical helicopter when the helicopter suddenly runs out of fuel drops out of the sky and crashes into an open field just outside of Mosby, Missouri. What happened? Could this have been prevented? And how may text messages have played a role in this accident? Coming up on this episode of The Dr. Medic. first start off by reiterating a sentiment from my very first video, which you can watch up above, which is that the purpose of this channel and these videos is to learn. To learn stuff that we may not know, but also maybe to learn from mistakes that have been made in the past. I'm always going to try my best to speak from an empirical point of view with data-driven opinions. And our profession and our entire world is better off today and safer than ever before because of the lessons we have learned from those who have come before us. This video will talk about some mistakes, but also about the loss of life, and that has to be respected. Nothing I say is meant to point fingers or assign blame, but again, instead, to figure out what happened so we can all do better in the future. This helicopter was manufactured by Eurocopter, which has since been acquired by Airbus, and was an A-Star 350 Model B2 with a tail number of N352LN. This helicopter was only eight years old at the time of the accident, being manufactured in 2003, and had a total of 3,655 total flight hours on it at the time of the accident. The flight service was called LifeNet of the Heartland, which is a subsidiary of Air Methods Corporation based out of Denver, Colorado which is one of the largest air medical providers in the world and in the United States, as they serve 48 states and have over 4,000 employees. You could say that the main company here is Air Methods with a local brand name of LifeNet, which is a very common practice amongst many community-based helicopter EMS programs in the United States. Being a community-based helicopter service, Helicopter 352 had a home base at Rosecrans Memorial Airport in St. Joseph, Missouri. The flight crew would typically consist of a pilot, a flight nurse, and a flight paramedic. Many bases also have a dedicated helicopter mechanic, including this one. These helicopters provide 24-7 emergency coverage to their areas and routinely fly in visual flight conditions during day or night. During night missions, they fly with the use of night vision goggles, otherwise known as NVGs. For scheduling, it is typical that pilots work 12-hour shifts while the medical crew may work 12 or 24 or sometimes even 48-hour shifts, with shifts usually beginning around 0700 or 1900 hours. On the day before the accident, the accident helicopter 352 was being used for training by a training pilot named Mr. Watson. Mr. Watson was using Helicopter 352 to train other pilots on night vision goggles. In order to do this training in an A-Star, the patient transport system, called a litter, has to be removed so that the co-pilot seat and controls may be installed in the aircraft. 
During this time, all of the medical equipment, such as the cardiac monitor, medications, and the ventilator, was removed by the medical crew to a spare helicopter. And in this case, that helicopter was 101LN. This training continued on the night before the accident. While 352 was being used to train, the medical crew was using helicopter 101 to respond to emergencies with their regular on-duty pilot that night, Mr. Palaic. Mr. Palaic began his shift the night before on the 25th at 1830 and would end his shift on the day of the accident at 0630 that morning. NVG training ended at 0300 the morning of the accident. At this time, the training pilot, Mr. Watson, reported to the on-duty pilot, Mr. Pelea, that he did not refuel the aircraft and that he did not do so because he wanted the on-duty pilot who normally flies out of this base to determine what fuel level would be best for him. You see, medical helicopters are limited sometimes in their flight abilities based upon many things, two of which are their total overall weight as well as their center of gravity. The pilot of any medical helicopter is aware of how much all of the equipment weighs on the helicopter, including the crew, their gear, and the fuel. What they do not know, though, is how much their patient may weigh when they get the emergency call to go and save a life. So to be prepared, they typically do not fill up the tank all the way, as it is always quicker to add more fuel if they need it, as opposed to be sitting on the helipad and burning off fuel because they weigh too much. It is very common practice for the level of fuel in the helicopter to differ based on local differences in flight crew weight, average flight times, so it's understandable why the training pilot would make the decision to hand off the aircraft with less than optimal fuel and just let the local pilot determine what fuel level is best. In this case, the typical fuel level of this aircraft at this base was 70%, and Mr. Watson turned over the aircraft to Mr. Pelaic with just 35% of fuel remaining. But remember I said that the aircraft had been reconfigured to allow for the training? Well, it takes quite a bit of time to reconfigure the aircraft back in order to be ready for medical flights and is normally done by the base mechanic who would not be in until later that morning. So when the accident pilot, Mr. James Freudenberg, showed up at 0630, he had to get a report for two aircraft. First, 101 as that aircraft was going to remain in service and second, the accident helicopter 352 as the mechanic was going to take much of the day to reconfigure it for medical use. The night pilot, Mr. Palaic, stated that he told James that 352 needed to be reconfigured and that it was low on fuel. At this point in the morning, James immediately conducted his pre-flight on helicopter 101 and noted that it had 70% of fuel or two hours of flight time. Later on in the accident day, around 1400 hours, the mechanic tells James that the reconfiguration is complete and they both complete a walk around together to ensure that everything is installed correctly. Over the next hour, the medical crew switches out the rest of the medical equipment back from 101 into 352, and James also transfers his pilot gear. 352 was finally moved out of the hangar and was in service for emergency calls around 1530 hours. 
The pre-flight of 352 would have taken place exactly at this time, and it is not known if it was ever completed as the flight log, which was required to be completed for pre-flight, was not signed or completed by James. Internal air methods policy also dictates that James should have taken routine fuel samples at this time and never did so. Less than two hours later at 1719 hours, the crew was called for an emergency transfer of a patient where they would need to fly to Harrison Hospital, pick up a critically ill patient, and then fly them to Liberty Hospital just on the outskirts of Kansas City, Missouri. The crew accepted the mission and were airborne at 1728. Just two minutes later at 1730, James did his radio report stating that he was departing the airport with three souls on board and two hours of fuel. This last part will end up being very important as recall that two hours of fuel would have been equivalent to about 70% of fuel and we already know that the aircraft only had 35% of fuel on board at this point. The flight to Harrison Hospital is uneventful and lasts approximately 40 minutes and they arrive at 1758. After landing, the medical crew is now 100% focused on patient care as they take their gear inside to stabilize and load up the patient. James stays outside at the aircraft and immediately calls Aircom at 1759. Aircom is primarily the medical dispatch center for air methods. James tells Aircom that he realized about halfway through the flight that he did not have as much fuel as he originally thought and said that he accidentally reported the fuel from the helicopter he was in earlier, 101. Aircom responds and asks James if he thinks he can make it to Liberty Hospital, but they never actually ask James how much fuel he has left on board. James responded with, well, that's going to be cutting it pretty close. I'm probably going to need to get fuel before that. Aircom searched along the intended flight path from Harrison Hospital to Liberty Hospital and noted that the only place that would have jet fuel available would be at Midwest National Air Center, otherwise known as GPH. To which James responded, uh, 58 nautical miles, so it would save me, save me about four nautical miles in a couple minutes. I think that's probably where I'm gonna end up going. This will end up being the fateful decision for James, his crew, and the patient. The communication specialist at Aircom asked the pilot if he was going to depart for GPH for fuel and then return for the patient pickup or if he intended to refuel with the patient on board at GPH. The pilot informed the dispatcher that he would refuel at GPH with the patient on board and then stated, I don't want to run short and I don't want to run into that 20 minute reserve if I don't have to. And we'll take off, I'll see how much gas I have when, and I'll call you when we're in the air. Just 12 minutes later, the medical crew has the patient loaded up and they depart for GPH at 1811 hours. James again does his radio report stating that he now has four souls on board in route to GPH for fuel and that they now have 45 minutes of fuel on board. When James made his first flight, it is pretty likely that he did think that the helicopter had 70% or two hours of fuel because of his confusion of which helicopter he was in. But this time, it is highly likely that James did know that he did not have 45 minutes of fuel on board, even though this is what he told Aircom. Remember, he had 35% earlier, which is about an hour's worth of flight time, and it took them 40 minutes to reach the hospital. 
This would mean they only have 20 to 30 minutes of fuel left and their intended flight time to GPH is going to be 30 minutes. At 1821, Aircom calls GPH and requests for a fuel truck to be ready to go as they plan to fuel the aircraft while the patient is still on board and that they should arrive in about 19 minutes. The flight towards GPH averaged about four to 600 feet above ground level and flying at about 115 knots. The last known satellite tracking showed the aircraft at 373 feet above ground level at just 0.9 miles north of the GPH runway. There were no witnesses to this crash. When the time had passed for the aircraft to have arrived at GPH, Aircom called GPH and then the wreckage was subsequently located in a farm field about one mile north of runway 18 at GPH. Tragically and sadly, the pilot, the flight paramedic, the flight nurse, and the patient did not survive the crash. The crash site was roughly 100 feet long with vertical crash damage consistent with a high rate of descent. The pilot, James Freudenberg, was just 34 years old and held a rotorcraft and instrument helicopter rating with the FAA and had a second class medical certificate. He originally flew as the pilot in charge on Apaches for the United States Army and had no previous civil experience before coming to air methods. He had a total helicopter flight time of 2,200 rotor hours with 895 hours as pilot in charge and just 104 hours on type, which is the B-2. James received a total of 12.3 hours of B-2 training from air methods and had zero experience in a flight simulator. James had been working full-time at another air methods base in Rapid City, South Dakota, where he was getting time in an A-Star 350B-3. The B-3 looks very similar to the B-2, but has a more powerful engine as well as improved hydraulic and fuel management systems. The day of the accident, James was working at this base in Missouri to cover an open shift due to a pilot shortage at that particular base. He had driven from South Dakota to Missouri over the previous 24 hours and stayed at a hotel the night before. He was off duty for five days before the accident and was scheduled to work 0630 to 1830 the day of the accident. Some co-workers and friends did say that during a call with James at 08.30 that morning, he stated that he did not sleep well at the hotel the night before and that he felt tired. Several mentioned that he was always in a very chipper mood and that he always seemed to follow the rules and seemed to genuinely enjoy his career as a helicopter pilot and his time at Air Methods. There was no post-impact fire and there was no fuel found at the site. Less than a liter of fuel was found in the fuel tank and the fuel lines, which were all intact. The evidence was consistent with a loss of engine power due to fuel exhaustion occurring shortly before impact. In short, they ran out of fuel. Based on the engine data regarding the speed of the engine generator, impact with the ground would have occurred less than 10 seconds after the engine flamed out when it ran out of fuel. The helicopter impacted the ground at about a 40 degree nose down attitude at a high rate of descent with a low rotor RPM. Wreckage examination determined that the engine lost power due to fuel exhaustion and that the fuel system was operating properly. 
It was later found during the investigation that the pilot was sending and receiving quite a few text messages on his personal cell phone during critical phases of this mission, including while flying the aircraft. These personal texts were sent during the time that he was to be pre-flighting 352 after it was reconfigured for medical flights during his actual phone call with Aircom regarding the low fuel situation and while flying the aircraft, including during the last leg of the flight, with the last text message being sent by James at about 1820, less than 10 minutes after taking off to get fuel at the airport. This aircraft has a reserve fuel capacity of about 18 to 20 minutes with the low fuel light coming on with 11% of fuel on board. Post-accident tests revealed that all lights were working properly, including that the low fuel level light was illuminated at the time of impact. The aircraft had a day and a night position for the interior lighting, where the lights would be much dimmer at night to allow for proper functioning of night vision goggles and other equipment. This is very similar to the dimming process of lights in your car or your truck at home. This switch is normally in the brighter position during the day and is a part of the pre-flight checklist for this aircraft. It was found that this switch was in the dim or night position and was functioning properly. Now, helicopters do not just fall out of the sky if they lose power or run out of fuel. Helicopters have an emergency maneuver that they can complete in the event of a loss of power, which is called an auto rotation. As the main rotor is not physically connected to the engine, it will continue to spin after power is lost. However, in order to keep main rotor speed up, the pilot must immediately reduce the collective so that the wind resistance does not slow the main rotor down. Likewise, a pilot would also normally put in aft cyclic and then control their speed as they descend. During their descent, the upward speed of air through the main rotors keeps the rotor RPM up so that when the pilot gets within just feet of the ground, they can pull up on the collective and flare the aircraft for the landing. According to the FAA, the entire maneuver would need to be recognized and started within just one to two seconds of an engine burning out of fuel. In a review of James's training, it was found that his previous check flights with instructors were done in a B-2 model just like 352. During these check flights, all pilots would have to execute multiple simulated auto rotations to complete their training. In a real emergency, if a pilot is doing an auto rotation, there is absolutely no power to the main rotor. However, during check flights, it depends on the aircraft on how this maneuver is completed. In many modern helicopters, there might be a twist throttle that allows for the instructor pilot to reduce the power all the way down to an idle to simulate low or no power. But on the B2 model, it's not possible to appropriately reduce the throttle to idle as the floor mounted control lever does not have a notch or a detent for idle. It basically only has full throttle and stop. Also in this aircraft at air methods, the pilots were not auto-rotating all the way to the ground and instead would practice auto-rotations to a hover over the ground at about three to five feet. James had extensive history and experience of one of the most powerful and exciting helicopters in the world 
the AH-64 or Apache. This is a twin-engine aircraft with tons of power. And in post-accident interviews, it was noted from other pilots that it was likely that James was not proficient in auto rotations because the Army didn't do auto rotations for twin-engine aircraft because they considered it such a remote possibility it wasn't worth the risk of damaging the aircraft. It was also noted that while there are amazing flight simulators for A-Stars, James did not have any training or experience in them. So James was expected to complete a very complicated maneuver to which it is likely that he did not have extensive training in and was expected to do so with a reaction time of just one to two seconds. While this is expected and it's possible, we have already noted that James was distracted by personal text messages and may have had many other pressing items on his mind throughout the entire accident day. During this accident flight, James was at the tail end of his 12-hour shift and had already noted earlier in the day that he was tired. He had just moved his family to a new home in South Dakota, but is far away from home on this day. His wife is pregnant with their first child and his father has just had a recent cardiac surgery. It's likely that James was also concerned about what type of sanctions might be brought against him if it was found that he made the air related to the fuel and even worse, that he likely purposely misrepresented his fuel status on the final leg of the mission. Another note from the investigation discusses who James contacted regarding his low fuel concern. Recall that he called Aircom, which is typically responsible for handling the overall logistics of the flight and relaying medical information between ground providers, hospital staff, and the medical crew on the helicopter. According to post-incident interviews, AIRCOM is not the go-to source for operational risk situations such as bad weather, issues with the aircraft, or situations like this where they're deciding on appropriate flight times given the amount of fuel on board. Instead, Air Methods has an entire dedicated program for this called their Operational Control Center, or OCC. Air Methods OCC would normally always have a pilot on duty who is available for situations just such as this. In this incident, the pilot never requested, nor was he referred to this very important resource. Had OCC been contacted, it is highly likely that the OCC pilot would have asked James how much fuel is actually on the aircraft. Had the OCC pilot known how much fuel was on board, it is likely that the patient would not have been flown on that last leg and that the med crew would have either called another helicopter or probably more likely called a local ground EMS ambulance to transport them and the patient the rest of the way while James stayed behind and waited for a fuel truck to deliver the fuel directly to him. While Air Methods has had helicopter accidents in the past, they are a very large company with one of the highest safety records that exists. They do have multiple processes set up within the company to prevent accidents like this from happening. All of the employees who were interviewed after the incident stated that they felt Air Methods was a safe company and they never felt like they were going to be retaliated against for making safety decisions. Executives stated in the interviews that had James called and admitted his mistake to OCC that he would have been almost praised for making a good safety decision, but that he also would have been put through some more training in order to prevent that same mistake from happening again. 
Nonetheless, it is likely that James still felt he would have been punished or even fired for the mistake, and this may have led to him continuing on and making subsequent mistakes. The National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, is the federal agency tasked with investigating accidents such as this. They are not enforcers of any laws and they do not make policy. They only investigate, they determine causes, and then they make recommendations to the agency that can make policy changes, which in this case is the Federal Aviation Administration or FAA. These investigations are extremely in-depth and can take years to complete. This particular investigation was not fully completed and published until almost two years after the accident. In this accident, the NTSB determined that the probable causes of this accident were the pilot's failure to confirm that the helicopter had adequate fuel on board to complete the mission before making the first departure. His improper decision to continue the mission and make a second departure after he became aware of a critically low fuel level and his failure to successfully enter an auto rotation when the engine lost power due to fuel exhaustion. Contributing to the accident were the pilot's distracted attention due to personal texting during safety critical ground and flight operations, his degraded performance due to being fatigued, and the flight operator's lack of a policy requiring that OCC specialists be notified of abnormal fuel situations, and, and finally, the lack of practice representative of an actual engine failure at cruise airspeed in the pilot's autorotation training in the accident make and model helicopter. Now, remember earlier when I mentioned that switch that dims the interior lights? After reading the reports, I believe that this switch may have played a bigger role than what the report seems to mention. The NTSB did note that while this switch was found in the dim setting, that it was impossible to tell whether or not this was switched to dim during the previous NVG flight the night before, whether James did it in flight, or whether this occurred during impact of a crash. This is probably why the NTSB could not officially note this as part of the cause of the accident. While I certainly cannot prove this, it seems likely that since we know that James did not pre-flight the aircraft 352 and never noticed the fuel was at 35%, that he never did the pre-flight checklist item that ensures this switch is in the daytime position. Why do I think this? Well, because based on the interviews about James, I do not think that he would continue to fly the aircraft or even take off if he saw that the low fuel level light was on. Likewise, the med crew in the back also could have seen the light come on as it is not normal for any lights to come on in this area of the instrument panel, let alone the fuel gauge. I think that James was assuming he had at least another 18 to 20 minutes of fuel on board because he believed this light was probably not on when in reality, he may have not seen it because it was still in a dim or night position. This also could have been a factor as to why the auto rotation was not performed successfully. In the NTSB interviews, it was noted that if James thought he was getting close to running out of fuel, that he would have been mentally preparing to perform an auto rotation. But if he didn't even think the light was on, then it is very likely that he was not getting prepared at all to complete an auto rotation. The NTSB made recommendations to both the FAA and to air methods. 
To the FAA, they recommended to prohibit the use of personal electronic devices or PEDs, in other words, cell phones, to require training on the importance of the distractions that these PEDs can cause to better inform all helicopter pilots of the importance of simultaneous down collective and aft cycling and to require flight recorders as this helicopter did not have one and was not required to. They also recommended to air methods to expand their policy on PEDs and to require pilots to consult with OCC when confronted with an operational risk situation such as this instead of aircom. Well, what are the lessons learned here? What about distraction and pressure? James and the rest of his crew had a routine, as do most flight crews in helicopter EMS. James performed an incomplete pre-flight inspection on this aircraft, which led to the mistake about the quantity of fuel on board. According to a 2000 study by Sartre and Alexander, errors of omission make up to 44% of the errors reported by aviation crew members. Such errors typically result from lapses of attention stemming from the interruption of a task by someone else in the cockpit and the subsequent forgetting of the overlooked action. Such findings have been used to justify the need for sterile cockpit requirements when an aircraft is being operated. Further, they suggest that interruptions could also play a role in lapses of attention that occur when safety critical activities are performed at other times such as during pre-flight preparation or pre-departure checks. James was interrupted many times throughout this process. It was an interruption to switch the aircraft and then even more interruptions when he sent and received personal text messages. Cell phones have been shown in many studies to be a leading cause of distractions in many different arenas from walking across the street to flying an airplane to performing surgery in an operating room. James found himself in a position of insurmountable pressure. He realized his mistake regarding the fuel when he got to the hospital to pick up the patient. One thing we always have to keep in mind is the type of patient that would be on this aircraft. Helicopters do not typically fly your average patient. The flight nurse and flight paramedic are most likely some of the highest educated and most trusted providers in their area. They have advanced critical thinking skills and advanced medical certifications. If they have been called to transport a patient, then it is highly likely that the patient is very sick and requires advanced treatment and their advanced assessment and rapid transport by the flight crew. It is possible that James was also concerned about the welfare for this patient and that further delaying transport may have been detrimental to the outcome of the patient. In a 2003 study, they found that time pressure, which the pilot faced when deciding to continue the mission, can exacerbate this effect by restricting opportunities to weigh potentially relevant cues and consider alternative courses of action. James was tired. He was distracted. He was a newer employee. And he may have suffered from a condition that we call get there Get there-itis is a real thing and is even cited in the FAA's risk management handbook as personal or external pressure that clouds the vision and impairs judgment by causing a fixation on the original goal or destination combined with a total disregard for alternative courses of action, in other words, tunnel vision. 
In a 2001 paper by Orosanu, they call this type of error a planned continuation error and have concluded multiple times that get there-itis is far more likely to occur at the end of a flight, in this case at the end of a ship. The NTSB has previously addressed the need for helicopter EMS pilots to receive scenario-based simulator training. Performing an autorotation is a stressful maneuver, especially with a crew on board as well as a sick patient. The FAA recommends a one-second reaction time in order to be able to recognize the situation and then be able to react in time before it's too late. The term practice makes perfect could not be more applicable than here. Muscle memory is everything when it comes to performing under stress, and contrary to popular belief, no one ever rises to the occasion when they're under pressure. Instead, we all fall to our lowest level of training and practice. In order to perform proficiently under pressure, pilots must be able to have that muscle memory. In this incident, due to the inability to fully simulate a loss of power during check rides, James may have not had the muscle memory necessary to perform that maneuver with so little time to react, especially if he was already distracted and stressed. Research has shown that a lack of situational awareness may have played a role as well. To be situationally aware, one must not only recognize an event, but they also must be able to interpret what that event means and then also be able to accurately predict how that event may unfold in the future. In this case, James did end up recognizing that he was low on fuel at one point, and he certainly predicted that he would need to get fuel before getting to the final destination with the patient. But, possibly due to being stressed and fearing the consequences of his previous mistakes, James may have got tunnel vision, which caused a failure to predict that he would actually not have enough fuel to get to his destination, and also that he most likely would not have received the punitive actions that he may have thought he would receive if he called another pilot and asked for their advice. It is my sincerest hope that when you watch this video, that you walk away with at least one lesson learned. It is because of the mistakes made in this accident that other flight crew members will be able to adjust their decision-making skills, understand the distractions that can come from cell phones, and practice their high acuity but low frequency skills more often. If you felt that this was a beneficial video, please don't forget to like and subscribe. I'm always curious to hear stories that you may have experienced such as this one. Feel free to send me an email or leave a comment below. I have nothing but love for all of you. Cheers to you all and I do hope that you have a beautiful rest of your day.